Welcome to this edition of the Alabama Historical Association's podcast program. I'm your host, Marty Olaf, and I talk with people who conduct interesting research and do interesting things concerning Alabama history. You can find out more about the Alabama Historical Association, a membership organization devoted to Alabama history, by pointing your browser at our website, www.alabamahistory.net. Our guest today is Guy Hubbs, author of the book, Tuscaloosa, 200 Years in the Making, published by the University of Alabama Press in 2019 and winner of the Alabama Historical Association's Clinton Jackson Coley Award in 2020. The Coley Award is presented to the best book about local history in Alabama that was published over the previous two years. Congratulations, Guy, and welcome to the podcast. This sounds like fun. Your book, Tuscaloosa, has a definite organizational structure that you've called the six decisions. That's kind of an unusual structure. Can you describe it to our podcast listeners? Uh, I think too often, many of us, and I include myself, of course, tend to think of history as just one thing after another. And then we look for some way to link these episodes together. But I really think there's much more involved with the past. So I wanted to do two things. I wanted to hammer home the point that the past is about making decisions and the consequences of that decision. But I also wanted to point out that we all live on an everyday basis. Every day we make decisions and we don't know the consequences of those decisions. Most of the time they're trivial, but sometimes they can have big consequences. Local history is probably the worst about one little thing after another, and, but local history has a lot of things going for it intellectually. That's what it was all about. I realize it's a complicated way of answering your question. Complexity and nuance is a good thing. Can you go over these six decisions kind of quickly? Sure. The first decision that made a difference is that Tuscaloosa became the capital of the state. The consequence of that was that Tuscaloosa became a cultural and educational center. University of Alabama would never have been in Tuscaloosa had not Tuscaloosa been the capital of the state, for example. And then the capital gets moved to Montgomery and Tuscaloosa goes through a profound depression. But of course, University doesn't move, and that's a big deal. The second big decision was when the state entered Confederacy to secede from the United States. That, of course, is a very complicated issue. This is not one of all one way and all the other. Tuscaloosa, for example, was a unionist town. And yet, after Fort Sumter, Tuscaloosans offered the abandoned state capital to be this capital of the Confederacy. There were all sorts of internal contradictions going on, but the big point of it is that this was disastrous for the South. It was disastrous for Tuscaloosans, with a major exception, and that is that the enslaved people were no longer enslaved. After a while, Jim Crow comes along, and it's slavery in all but name, but you had the promise of equal rights under the Constitution, that 
gets put in with the three reconstruction amendments. And again, this is all quite complex, but the consequences of going with the Confederacy were just immense, and we're still dealing with it, really. The third decision was Tuscaloosa's decision to attract smokestack industries. This was a time in which iron and steel, railroads, steamboats, mining, all of these things were driving the economy. And Tuscaloosans are sitting on the edge of a major coal field and iron and on a major river. They can't understand why they shouldn't be the the manufacturing center that's going on 50 miles northeast in a place called Birmingham. And they deliberately try to become another Birmingham. Well, it doesn't work. They have some success, but it's very, very limited. Uh, The fourth chapter is, if you don't mind my saying, I think it's the most original chapter. (laughs) And that is the way that small inventions that were coming out in the second half of the 19th century, Tuscaloosans used those to transform their city from an old town into a modern city. And I mean that in a literal sort of way. In 1869, the editor of the local newspaper said, we need to be a modern city. This is just an old town. And sure enough, if you look at what was going on, it looked like an old town. And visitors would come and say, this is an old, worn-out town. Well, old is 50 years old, you know? In 1869, it was 50 years old. It just looked old. Everything was falling apart. There was no street lights. There was no electricity, of course, no nothing. Well, he said, all we need is a telegraph, a railroad, and some gas lights, and we'll be a modern city. Well, guess what? They put those in, and, well, we need some other stuff, too, you know? And this builds on itself, and things come along. The electric light bulb comes along. The bicycle comes along, which is a huge innovation that we take for granted. It was the single most important factor in women's liberation for about a century because it allowed young women to get out on their own. They didn't have to saddle a horse and all of that sort of stuff. The single most important innovation that came along was clean water. Physicians in Tuscaloosa were making these very careful charts and all, and they they said in the newspaper within a very short time, infant mortality has dropped precipitously since we introduced piped clean water. Well, if you take 1869 and then you project it up to 1939, that's 70 years, that's three score and 10 is supposedly our lifetime, according to the Bible. Within that one lifetime, You started out with wells in the middle of the street and donkeys and horses and all that. Well, you flash forward, you got automobiles and streetlights and electric poles and light bulbs and the whole thing. It's just a huge transformation. And that was because of a decision that they made that they wanted to be a modern city. Now, a lot of these decisions were small and they didn't think about it. They're unthought decisions, but nevertheless. I think that's the most interesting chapter. Anyway, the fifth chapter is about Tuscaloosans going off in World War II to see the world. It starts off that way, but it's also true that the world starts looking at Tuscaloosa and specifically at its racial situation. 
Tuscaloosa, like many, many cities throughout the South, had significant race issues. Bloody Tuesday was the one in Tuscaloosa. And of course, we had the desegregation of the University of Alabama. And of course, they looked at Tuscaloosa because of the Crimson Tide football. And then the final chapter has to do with the 2011 tornado that wiped out over 12% of the town who just scoured it. The response of the world to that event was very interesting. So those are the six decisions that I lay out. Well, I think that your next yeah. last chapter about the tornado, which you obviously lived through, has an immediacy that the other chapters, because you're looking at them through the historian's gaze, do not. So I don't have any questions. I just would like to give you an opportunity to address anything more that you'd like to say about the 2011 tornado and how you dealt with it in the book. And let me say that you even have a picture of yourself walking into the debris field with two other people. So obviously this was very present to you, as you've indicated. Go into a little bit more detail about this sixth chapter about the 2011 tornado, if you would. I think there are 100,000 people in Tuscaloosa. There's going to be 100,000 different stories about that tornado. I lived through it, as you probably figured. In fact, I originally wrote that chapter in the first person about what I was seeing. My house was hit. We were out of our house for eight months. Lived with my mother. As you mentioned the photograph, those two other people were family members. We walked back in a couple of days later when we could get back in to see what a wreck it was. We were walking into Alberta City is what the photograph shows. I was just kind of shocked. I don't know how to put it at the generosity of people. I didn't see that ahead of time. Of course, I didn't see the tornado ahead of time. But, you know, we live our lives day to day and we deal with people. When push comes to shove, people could not have been more generous with their time and money. And the stories just went on and on and on. I had, I just had to, I mean, there's a limit to the number of pages you can deal with this. The churches, in particular, the faith communities opened up their doors and have continued. We still get people from Northern Ireland comes Tuscaloosa that they started coming after the tornado and they just made it a point to come every year to help out on things in Tuscaloosa. I just think that's phenomenal. And then when the Joplin, Missouri tornado hit, which was worse than ours, Tuscaloosans went to Joplin, Missouri to help those folks out. And that was only a month later. It was just amazing to me the way that whole thing panned out. I guess the shock of a tornado, especially a large EF5 tornado like the one in Tuscaloosa and the one in Joplin, that causes so much destruction, really captures the imagination and the heart of people outside of the area in which the tornado has occurred and gives those people outside of the area a cause. Tuscaloosa, to be quite upfront about it, had one huge advantage over Joplin, Missouri, and that is that the tornado occurred during the day. People knew to be on the lookout for it, and there were video cameras all over the place during that tornado. 
People were watching it all over the country as it happened. Sadly, in Joplin, Missouri, it happened in the middle of the night. There was no scenes of it occurring. All you saw was some wrecked buildings afterwards. That was a huge impetus for people outside the area to come help because they saw the thing actually attack the town. I suspect there'll be a lot more histories written about the tornado from 2011 as people get a little bit further away from it, more sources come to light, and there's a little more historical perspective. So yours certainly will not be the last word. I'd like to say, I'm glad you were able to put it in, but I'm sorry it happened so that you had to put it in. In a funny way, yeah, don't get me wrong, I'm sorry it happened, but it sure put a coda to the book. Tuscaloosans were coming together and and also, by the way, we won the national championship against LSU that time. And, and Saban had already told the players, we're doing this for Tuscaloosa, you know, so that kind of worked out. Let me give you a little story. When Tuscaloosa launched its bicentennial, they had a big soiree down at a pavilion down on the river. I get this phone call from Kathy Randall and Kathy says, Guy, are you coming to this thing? I said, well, sure. And she said, well, can you talk for like 10 minutes on the history of Tuscaloosa? I said, oh, sure. You know, well, I find out a couple of days ahead of time that I'm the featured speaker. It's not that I'm just talking for 10 minutes about Tuscaloosa. I'm the featured and only speaker. That's not quite the same thing, you know. So anyway, I decided to talk about who is a Tuscaloosa. I started out by talking about the first people who came to Tuscaloosa and they were just going through like crazy. And I said, well, they didn't make very good Tuscaloosans. And then I go through various kinds of folks and they didn't make very good Tuscaloosans. And then there was a vast part of the population that were not allowed to be Tuscaloosans because they weren't citizens and, you know, on and on that. And then I said, but you know, we do have a model of what a good Tuscaloosa is. And then I recounted all the people that had come to Tuscaloosa to help. And I said, now those are Tuscaloosans. If they're not real Tuscaloosans, at least they're honorary Tuscaloosans. And they certainly tell us that a Tuscaloosa is someone who helps out and contributes to the greater good of Tuscaloosa. And that resonated with people. Guy, why this book at this time? Well, it's very simple. <laughs> it was Tuscaloosa's bicentennial. I had contacted the powers that be a couple years before. I said, by the way, you know, you folks have a bicentennial coming up. Would you like me to write something for you? I, I never heard a word back. And then <laughs> I get this sort of semi-frantic phone call. Can, can you come down and talk to us about so, uh, like a year later, by that time, there was quite a time consideration <laughs> involved. So I told them I'd do it in 12 months, and I did. That's pretty remarkable, because you started out only with your own knowledge about Tuscaloosa and what little research you'd already done on Tuscaloosa to create this entire story that spans 200 years. Well, I was familiar with a lot of the antebellum stuff, surely, a fair bit of the 19th century stuff, because I've published different books and articles about things that went on in Tuscaloosa in the 19th century. So that was a big leg up. 
I was certainly the only person who could have done it in 12 months, I think. <laughs> <laughs> I'm absolutely sure that that is correct. Many people in the Alabama Historical Association know you, but others might not. Would you tell us some about yourself, where you're from, your academic career, your current interests? Oh, my heavens, that's a checkered story. I'll try to make it real short. My family entered Alabama before statehood on my mother's side. My grandfather roomed on the second floor of Manley University of Alabama. My parents both graduated from U of A. My dad asked my mother to marry him on the steps of the student union. My dad taught at U of A. So, of course, I was born in Alaska and raised in Alaska. It makes perfect sense, right? And uh, I married a Canadian, which also makes perfect sense. By the way, she loves it down here. And I dedicate the book to her. And I'll read the dedication. It says, Canadian by birth, Tuscaloosa by choice, for Pat, of course. It's a long story. I started out in a different academic field. And my wife was in med school. And we came to Tuscaloosa because that was the family home. And she was in the residency program in Tuscaloosa. And I found Alabama and Tuscaloosa in particular the most intellectually interesting place and thing I had ever encountered. And I was an undergraduate philosophy major. I actually had graduate work in philosophy. So I was used to intellectually interesting things. And Tuscaloosa and Alabama was just this tangle, this Gordian knot of things going on. And I just thought this was great. It was all sorts of ideas coming together in this complex sort of way that interested me how they were going to be worked out. And so I shifted into intellectual history that I do. It's applied ideas. And I got my doctorate at the university under Larry Cole, who remains a dear friend. Then I became the archivist up here at Birmingham Southern College, and I also was in the library. But being at a liberal arts college, they allow you to teach whatever the heck you please. So I would teach in the history department, and I would teach courses on whatever I please, like the meaning of the liberal arts or whatever, you know. So that was just great. And along the line, I published several books. Surely that's enough. <laughs> Just almost um, enough. Oh, oh my well, goodness. Tell us about some of these other books that you published. My dissertation was turned into a book called Guarding Greensboro, a Confederate company in the making of a Southern community. It's about Greensboro, Alabama, from settlement in the 1820s into the 1870s and how their devotion to the Confederacy, the white, of course, devotion to the Confederacy and the troops they sent off transformed an American town that was committed to slavery into a Southern town. These were modernists who were into capitalism and all sorts of stuff. It turned them into a traditional old style community. So it works backwards. Everybody thinks that old becomes new. Well, this is new becomes old. That won the Davis Award and the Robertson Prize for the best Civil War book in 2003. I published some others along the way. I published a book called Searching for Freedom. Klansman, Carpenter, Eric, Stalloway, and Friedman is the subtitle. Um, that's about a chance meeting of these four archetypal characters on streets one day of Tuscaloosa in August of 1868. 
It's about their lives and how their lives intersected, but it's basically about how the four different ways they have of understanding freedom. Freedom is not one thing. Freedom is not doing whatever you want, you know, as long as it doesn't hurt somebody. That's just one of many different kinds of freedom. And these characters out of Reconstruction had four very different ideas of what it meant to live freely. And they weren't all consistent by any stretch of imagination. One thing we didn't mention was that out of the Tuscaloosa book, after I'd sent that in, I was invited yet again to meet with the powers that be. <laughs> and he said to me, uh, Guy, you, you're finished with the Tuscaloosa book, but you need to write us a book for children. I said, what? I don't write for children. They said, oh, yes, you do. You can do this. And I said, I've never written for children. And then Harry Fredrickson, chair of the history department, and a, and a dear friend looked at me and said, Guy, you know what fourth graders like? They like little biographies. And I said, oh, okay, I can do that. So we put together this little five by eight softbound book about two dozen different characters from Tuscaloosa's past, put them in chronological order, fully illustrated. They run the gamut from heroes to villains. All these people who have shaped Tuscaloosans, and a friend of mine laid it out and published it locally. It was given to all fourth graders in Tuscaloosa, and my word, it was the best-selling book I've ever had and it wasn't for sale. <laughs> the kids got so crazy about it. There were pictures on the front page twice of kids reading this thing. So I don't know. It was, but it was, it was very successful. The kids really went crazy about that. So what other projects will people dragoon you into doing for the future? A dear friend of mine dragooned me, that's a good word, into writing a history of First Pres at Tuscaloosa for their bicentennial, and I'm a soft touch for friends. I do have a long-term project I've been working on for decades, but I keep getting interrupted, and that's on the meaning of gratitude. At this rate, I'll never finish it. <laughs> <laughs> you know, we all have that project, the one that lurks in the back of our heads forever and ever, and we play with it, and we try to make good on it, and it just keeps getting pushed to the bottom of the to-do pile, I guess. Oh, yeah. Yeah. oh yeah. Guy, do you have anything else that our audience should know? In a way, I don't feel like I wrote the book about Tuscaloosa or Tuscaloosans. I feel like they wrote the book and that I sort of edited it. <laughs> I gave it shape, but you know, we're writing our own chapters every day. I kind of approach life that way. I say, you know, I have a chapter to write, and how am I going to write this chapter? Of course, it doesn't always work out that way, but, I, you know, I, I'm writing this book about Tuscaloosa, and I'm saying, well, I'm not writing it. These people have already written it. I'm just sort of taking the best parts of what they have written, and I'm, I'm putting it into some sort of shape. I got to figure out a better way to say that, but you see what I'm saying. I absolutely do. It's almost like the job of the historian is to curate these chapters that other people have already written, at least those that we can get sources for, and try to figure out how chapters that other people have written that we don't have sources for fit in, what they might have been like. Yes, and there's one caveat with that. 
Because these people have already written their chapters, it is absolutely incumbent upon me not to misrepresent what they said or intended. For good or evil, I can't take what they said and say, well, they were terrible people because they didn't believe what I believe or what they were really doing was this and that and the other. That's not what we're about. We're about giving people their due, but people have different views. They live in different times and we can profit from what they did right and from what they did wrong, but let's not manipulate that. Someone has said it very interestingly, history does not teach us anything. We learn from the past, which is something entirely different. In other words, the past is sitting there. We're not to mess with it, but we are to draw upon it as a resource. When we think about, well, what should we do here? All we have to look from in terms of resources is what's already happened. But if we are always going about manipulating that into something we want it to be, we're not doing ourselves any good and we're certainly doing harm to, to those who've gone before us. And that's a long way of saying these people have written their chapters and let's give them their fair shake. Congratulations again for winning the Alabama Historical Association's Clinton Jackson Coley Book Award for 2020 for your book, Tuscaloosa, 200 Years in the Making, published by the University of Alabama Press in 2019. Thank you for joining us, Guy, and it's been a real pleasure to talk with you. Well, it has for me too, Marty, and I really am honored that you would ask me. So thanks a bunch. Thank you for joining us today. This has been another edition of the Alabama Historical Association podcast program. Our music is the traditional tune, Whistle By, performed at city stages in 1996 by James Bryan and Carl Jones. It's provided courtesy of the Alabama Folklife Association, which you can find on the web at alabamafolklife.org.